Hello, listeners. You are listening to Historical AF, or if you cuss like we do, historical as fuck. I'm your nerdy historian, Kina. And I am your super sleepy but awesome librarian, Ashley. We're here to deliver the funny, weird, morbid, random, and spooky historical nuggets you never knew you needed. Welcome to episode one. (laughs) Yay, we made it! We survived! We, we are currently we are currently rocking 69 listens for our episode one. So <laughs> shout out to you, Dirty Birdies. Oh, we love you guys. We're so excited that you are liking us on Facebook and Instagram and you're actually listening. And some of you guys think we're actually funny. So I love you. <laughs> we love you. Thank you so much. And only like a dozen each of those listens are actually us. <laughs> I cannot confirm or deny that. (laughs) Isn't that the White House toll line? Deny, deny, deny. True. I will say that is episode one, and I have to do my first retraction. Last week, I said that uh, I love Texas because there were no mosquitoes. And I was promptly swarmed by mosquitoes and bitten all over my body. So I get it, Texas. Do not mock you. And as our listener, Michelle, reminded me, Texas doesn't like to be taunted. So I see you, Texas. I apologize. (laughs) Please love me. Yes. Yeah. Learned that lesson the hard way. True. And my husband also brought to my attention that I essentially shat on my home state in the first 10 minutes of last episode. So (laughs) I'd like to say that I do love Arkansas. It is beautiful. It has the Crescent Hotel, which is the most haunted hotel in the country. If you haven't been there, you should go. Represent. Yeah, and it also has Crystal Bridges, where I was fortunate to intern, and Historic Arkansas Museum, where I got to be a graduate assistant and meet the greatest people ever. But Arkansas does not have H-E-B, or Bucky's or Whataburger, or the barbecue that Texas does. So I stand by what I say. I love Texas. You know what? I'm still going to shit on Arkansas. Sorry, Arkansas. <laughs> Get your shit together. Until then, damn you. It was so muggy supposed to storm today i'm just like ugh, i'm over it i'm over it i mean technically it's supposed to storm like right now but it pushed it till nine so that we could record it's so nice of texas i'm also really glad we survived this week because between the two of us we've been to the doctor the hospital (laughs) the vet not for not for us specifically (laughs) but for the fur children yes it's true but we're okay and we are here and we are so pumped yes so one Guys, we have been like so fucking excited about doing our um, our notes for our stories coming up. Like we have continually tried not to spoil our stories for each other while also wanting to tell each other about our stories as we got the notes together. Oh, I know. I have been trying to tell you this one thing all day and I'll write it down and then I have to like erase. I'm like, no, Kina, do not yes. spoil this. Yes, me too. Yes. So glad it's not just me. Also, preemptive high fives to um, my coworker, Catherine, who laughed at my jokes that I made her listen to while she was supremely busy at work and for, you know, being just nice in general about my overzealousness at history. Yay, high five! So thanks, Catherine. Oh, I'm so excited. So do you want to just jump right into it? Sure, I'll start. We, uh, as a refresher from episode zero, our theme this week is Easter. But we presumably, on my end anyway, are not going like super biblical with it. But let me just give you a rundown in case you did not see our YouTube video of what we rolled. Uh, And you should definitely, I made the grudge noise again. 
you should definitely <laughs> go back and watch that video because the production value is amazing. So oh, here's what <laughs> I got you. So here's what I rolled. My first one that I got was random as fuck. And as discussed in our last episode zero, whenever one of us rolls random, the other person has to come up with a word to give that person to base their story around. So I yelled pineapple. Yes. So I will be doing a random as fuck story about pineapple. Second, I rolled morbid as fuck. And third, I rolled funny as fuck. So I have a printout of some uh, stories I put together, some historical tidbits, some twistery, if you will, about my topics. So Kina, what'd you get? All right. I got spooky as fuck. That, what, what was that? <laughs> <Okay>. I got <laughs> spooky as fuck. I got weird as fuck. And then I got our classic history, historical as fuck. And I'll just jump right into that, if you don't mind. Hell yeah, let's do this. Let me take a drink of beer. (laughs) I support this. One thousand. (laughs) All right, so for our first story, I am going to do the White House Easter Egg Roll. The Easter Egg Roll as a game reportedly originated in the pre-Christian Anglo-Saxon pagan religion in areas around present-day Germany and UK. So according to past authors like Jacob Grimm, who is the big bro of the Brothers Grimm, shout out to him. Okay. The game was part of a feast held to honor the spring goddess, Istra, or she was also called Ustra, because you know your girl Googled that. (laughs) Her spirit animal was the fertile hare, hence the old expression, doing it like bunnies. Nice. Ah, score. The egg was also used to symbol the spring's rebirth. So authors like Grimm claim that Pope Gregory the Great ordered his missionaries to absorb old religious festivals into Christian rituals, a la Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) They believed that the Christian celebration of Christ was suited to merge with the pagan holiday of Istra or Ustra because its timing is around the vernal equinox, a.k.a. late March. This blending of the two celebrations explains why so many of the Istra or Ustra symbolism was adopted into the Christian festivities, including the egg roll. Nice. So after the Christian religion started to absorb the pagan religion, Easter eggs began to represent Jesus's emergence from the tomb and the egg roll actually represented the rock rolling away from the tomb at the resurrection. I love how I was like, we're not going to get biblical. Just kidding. <laughs> First thing. So the Easter egg roll was actually brought to the United States by European settlers. And on Easter Monday in 1876, 10,000 tiny humans with the day off from school reportedly congregated at the U.S. Capitol with baskets full of dead eggs. Sources say that the Capitol had the best hills for the rolling. I cannot confirm that because I have not been to D.C. Have you been to D.C.? I have not. I was just trying to think. Like, I know that they did something similar at the governor's mansion here in Arkansas when I was little, because I definitely went to that shit. I remember, like, shout out to uh, good old Mike Huckabee. He was the governor at the time. And I remember actually, like, him coming out there and rolling down the hills with us, which was just real fucking weird, even as a kid. Um, So, yeah, I guess it's just like, you know branches of government like that also have hills like hills for days i guess i don't know 
I almost made like a sound of music reference and then I canceled that. <laughs> so speaking of hills, the screaming teacup humans rolled their eggs and themselves down the grassy hills of the west side of the Capitol grounds, which led the St. Louis Globe Democrat to report that the noise was so great that the House and the Senate chambers drowned in all other sounds and business of the country had to halt as the congressman exited the building to witness the commotion and even worse to them, the ensuing destruction. Oh, humanity. (laughs) Kids done fucked up the grass and then left it covered in raw eggs. Nobody was thrilled. Wait, they left their Easter eggs raw? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was before, like, fake eggs. Uh, You're supposed to boil that shit. What the hell? Go on. Sorry. This was, like, 1870. I guess. I mean, what was it? I forgot. 1876. This was 1876. All right. (laughs) That's good. Congress (laughs) responded by creating the Get Off My Damn Lawn Act, known officially as the Turf Protection Law. (laughs) Of course they did. President Ulysses S. Grant signed the measure into law on April 29th, so that's just two weeks later, thus shitting out all the hopes and dreams of the children that they might have a fun Easter the next year. God damn it. (laughs) But rain washed out the party in 1877, so the kiddos got a rude awakening when they were turned away by the goddamn police in 1878. Goddamn police. So cue some disappointed kids. But not for long, because on the other side of town, President Rutherford B. Hayes and his wife Lucy told their guards to let the kids roll at the White House, and thus, the White House Easter egg roll was born. Nice. Side note, some historians claim that Dolly Madison, who, by the way, is a badass woman that I can't wait to talk about, was actually the first to propose the idea of a public egg roll around 1810. There were also some accounts of informal egg rolls staged by the children of President Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Johnson. But according to the White House Historical Association, the 1878 event hosted by Hayes on the South Lawn stands as the first official White House Easter egg roll. In 1889, President Benjamin Harrison, how many of you knew he was a president? I did not. recruited the United States Marine Band to the party. And it began to grow each year until more than 50,000 people tried to pour into the South Lawn in 1937. Jeez, okay. That's a lot of people. That is until war broke out. So between World War I, World War II, the post-war food rationing, and the renovation of the White House under President Harry Truman, the egg roll was canceled. So it was 1953 before President Dwight D. Eisenhower revived the tradition after a 12-year hiatus. His wife, Mamie Eisenhower, actually proposed that year that the event be open to African-American children. She ensured that they were allowed to participate in the following year. All right, so the Easter Bunny made its first appearance at the Egg Roll in 1969, where a member of the First Lady Pat Nixon's staff transformed into said bunny, and was apparently a bigger star than the president in the eyes of some of the children. Which I'm sure went over really well with Nixon. So well. <laughs> Five years later, organizers raided the White House kitchen for silverware to stage the first egg rolling races where the childlings used spoons to push their eggs down marked lanes. Can you just picture that? Like the White House staff being like, we need more spoons! Where are the spoons? <laughs> Not the silver! Not the good silver! <laughs> All right. 
So by the 1970s, the Easter egg roll became a full-on rager. President Jimmy Carter added a three-ring circus and a menagerie that included a 1,200-pound steer named Big Red in 1977. Okay. And then four years later, President Ronald Reagan and First Lady Nancy Reagan added a Broadway show and balloons from the Macy's Day Thanksgiving Parade. Yo, we need to go. Right? I'll get. It's to not that, that cool anymore, is it? It is. Okay. But I'll get to my my problem in a little bit. All right. So the Reagans also staged a hunt for wooden eggs that were autographed by Hollywood stars, famous politicians, and all the sporting people. I don't sport, so I don't really care about that. The sports balls, yes. Sports balls. All right, so since then, the wooden eggs have been inscribed with signatures of the president and the first lady and have been handed out as official keepsakes for all egg rollers 13 and under. There's my God issue. damn it. We're too <sighs> old, and we don't have tiny humans. Yeah, I can't even pass as 13 anymore. <laughs> so, I'm so Not old. that I would want to. Ah, we shall not speak of my age. So, in 1998, the White House Easter Egg Roll festivities were broadcasted live on the internet for the first time. And then in 2009, tickets to the White House Easter Egg Roll were available online. Because so many people wanted to go to this rager, only 35,000 tickets are now distributed online in a public lottery, which is supposedly meant to make sure that everybody across the country has an equal chance of going. So... I picked this topic because Ashley and I actually know a real goddamn (laughs) White House bunny. Yep. She was the bunny from the Clinton administration. And I have some quotes straight from the bunny herself. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The egg roll itself, the game they play, uses real eggs. The chefs spend eons making hard-boiled egg that they dye. Can you imagine? Like, you're the White House chef. And, like, you're putting all your heart and soul into this. And nobody knows about it. So, here we go. This podcast is giving you some credit, guys, because you're doing a damn good job. We see you. You are visible. All right. And then at the end of the event, when people are leaving, they're given the wooden souvenir egg. But only if they're 13 and under, and that's bullshit. It is bullshit. I'm very upset about that. So, I read on the internet that it was a top-secret confidential bunny pact that if you are the bunny, you cannot disclose that you are the bunny. Yes. So, our rabbit friend said that she does not recall that rule, although they're not supposed to talk when they're out on the lawn because, I quote, rabbits don't talk. (laughs) I love that that has to be differentiated. I know, it's so cute. (laughs) All right. She said that there were three suits in all, a mom, a dad, and a baby. And over the years, she wore them all. And different people wore them all day long. You'd go out for about an hour, then go inside, and then somebody else would be ready to go. That way, they don't get too hot or overheated. Yeah. With three costumes in years, there was always one or more outside. And a bunch of different people did it every year. She said there was also an egg costume that's really cute, but she never got to be an egg. So, sorry, Deborah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry that's just like oh and there's also eggs walking anthropomorph- anthropomorphic eggs that just do their thing i also read a statement from sean spicer who uh we might uh, remember was the white house bunny at one time spicy that, spice. He- <laughs> spice, spice. that uh 
the uniform is very hot and you can't see anything and it was horrible. So our bunny friend said, yeah, the suits were hot because you're a bunny. But they were really nice and very well made. She said you could see out of them, but there's 100 kids out there. So it's really hard to be aware of what kids are really up close to you. So they had escorts from the military that would walk around with them and say things like, Mr. Bunny, this little girl wants to give you a hug. And then you'd have to lean over to be able to see her. You would nod and clap your hands because bunnies don't talk, remember? Nice. I know. This is one of my favorite little tidbits she gave us from our super famous bunny friend. One time, it was really windy and my head started to blow off. (laughs) I caught it right after making eye contact with Janet Reno. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, I love this so much. I know. And then finally, um, I was a little concerned because I saw some pictures and the bunny in the last few few years has been naked. So I asked her about that. And she said, uh, regarding the nude bunny, (laughs) I I guess some of the clothes have gotten lost or too worn over the years. Kind of strange. The mom has a purple dress with a pink heart. The kid had a blue orange vest and the dad had a tuft of gray hair and glasses and a sharp vest. So, uh, there we go. That's the uh, White House Easter egg roll. And the exclusive from the bunny herself. Yes. From the mouth of the bunny? But bunnies don't talk. Oh. I, uh, I'm stumped. Well, we'll just go with bunny herself. <laughs> Sorry, my, my chair keeps rolling away slowly from my table. Okay. <sighs> okay. All right. So what do you got for me, Ashley? Okay. I am worried that my story will not be as long. That's so. okay. That's the only long one I have. My other... Okay, good. Okay. All right. So, I mean, I can't really think of anything like it was you really covered everything like it was really comprehensive. So I don't have a ton of questions. Okay, so to jump into my first story, I had a random as fuck random AF and Kina gave me pineapple. (laughs) So I actually had a lot of freaking fun learning about pineapples. Let me tell you. Okay, so like My first little side note before I kind of go back is that though a pineapple is usually associated with Hawaii, it's not actually native to the island, but it's a major crop in Hawaii and has been since 1903 when it was first canned there by James Drummond Dole, you know, the Dole Hawaiian Pineapple Company. Oh, yeah. Uh, He owned a pineapple plantation in Oahu and... I take back my oh yes and Yeah, I know. Yeah, I was really surprised to find out that it was a plantation, not a farm. I don't know why I didn't realize that. But yeah, so it's plantation. And Hawaii was introduced to the fruit originally in 1770, but they didn't start widely consuming it until like the 1880s because steamships, shits, really? (laughs) Steamships? Steamships? Yes, steamships made it possible to move the product more quickly before it ruined. That's right. You're welcome for that, ladies and gentlemen. So anyway, the history of the pineapple. Native to South America, it was named for its resemblance to pine cones, which I found a little weird because I didn't think there were pine cones in South America, but I figured out that the term pine cone didn't actually come into play till later. I'm just, before I start this, let me just, just, just a little side note. There's some things in here that have quotation marks around them, and I'm just going to name them with air quotes. 
First, Christopher Columbus was the European credited with quote-unquote discovering it in 1493 on the island of Guadalupe, much like how he quote-unquote discovered the Indians. Womp womp. (laughs) Um, He called it Pina de Indes, which is Pine of the Indians, and the actual word pineapple didn't appear in a print form until 1664. Wow. So it it took a couple hundred years, but I, I guess because he wasn't like native to the area that's where you get the pine part from uh and yeah the the articles i read were like oh it's called a pineapple even though it's neither pine nor apple (laughs) and like just super super pretentious it was so dumb anyway yeah pip pip so the pineapple had stints of stint oh my god i can't words the pineapple had stints of popularity in the Caribbean, Central America, and Mexico, where it was cultivated by the Aztecs and the Mayans. These Ooh. humid clim- climates, I know, I'm like, yes, Mayans. Uh, these, these humid climates worked for cultivating a crop. Columbus took the pineapple to Spain, one of the only places with brown people he didn't classify as Indians. Yeah. No, that was a side note. He's, he's, he's awful. He's awful. But no, that was just my own side note. One of the only places with brown people he's gone that he did not classify as Indians. Um, After Spain, it hit the Philippines and then it made its way to Hawaii. Magellan likewise, quote unquote, discovered the pineapple. Like, seriously, people, you didn't discover it. It was already fucking there. Natives were eating it. You didn't discover shit. Yes. Preach. But anyway... So Magellan discovered the pineapple in 1519, and by 1555, he was like, hey, England, get on this shit. And England obliged. They did indeed get on that shit. So so from there, it spread to India, Asia, and the West Indies. And this is a great way to figure out, by the way, this is another side side note. This is a great way to figure out how to play Pandemic, the game. Like, you look at these trade routes, and it's really easy to figure out what places you could carry your plague, like, the most successfully. <laughs> just just a side note. So, so this is, like, this starts my favorite part of everything. So, because it was so costly to grow pineapples in places like England and the upper American colonies, they had to build special hothouses to grow them. This was so extremely expensive to upkeep that pineapples became status symbols for the aristocracy. I know, like, real, like, if you were really wanting to, like, be fancy, you went the way of the pineapple. So pineapples could be rented to display on tables at lush gatherings to display wealth and status. (laughs) It reminds me from, uh, oh, what was it? The Princess Diaries, where she's like, a chicken for your table. Yes. Pineapple Pineapple. for your table. Yes. Yes. Like they would be like, my daughter's engaged. I need a pineapple for the spread. Like what? It like it gets even better for the the status. So not only could pineapples be rented for like table displays for a night, some people would also rent a pineapple to take with them to a party, not as a gift to the host, but just to carry around like a Louis uh, Louis Vuitton bag. Like, look at me and my wealth. (laughs) I brought my date. It's kind of spiny, but super sweet, but no one can touch it. So, yeah, like, and I wrote down, this is a terrible joke. I'm so sorry in advance. I wrote down, it was like the truck nuts of the colonies. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I don't know why that popped in my head while I was typing this up. 
I love you for it. I'm so happy that you're blessed with that. <laughs> yes. That's, that'll go on our t-shirts if you'd like to buy some merch. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, so anyway, basically, these same fruits would make the rounds from person to person being rented to parties night after night. It had a much better social life than I ever had. But they would pass them around until they just basically rotted and fell apart. Yeah, so that's a little weird. Could you imagine being like the 30th person to rent the pineapple for the night and like you've got it in like the 1800s equivalent of a Ziploc baggie? Like what do you do with that if you're the one that has the rotten pineapple? Like is that like lose? I don't know. (laughs) You get to be a peasant now. This is like the worst game of like hot potato ever. But yeah, so um, and then the also especially like in the American colonies, you could buy there were confectioners that like they just did sweet shit and the they sold candied pineapple, but that was also so expensive. So it would be used as special treats for children. So maybe like if the Easter bunny was leaving something behind. Oh, that's right. Tied it into the theme. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, they were treats and gifts for uh, holidays. I just remembered I forgot to look up this word, but Louis the 15th, Catherine the Great, and Charles II, Charles II adored pineapple so much and could actually afford it. So, like, that was another, you know, hey, we're we're royal, so we're going to eat this a lot. But Charles II loved it so much that he had a painting commissioned of his gardener handing him a pineapple. <gasps> You're going to please tell me that's going to be on our Instagram. Absolutely. Yes. And by the way, people, anything that we talk about today that we decide to provide pictures for will be posted on our social media, uh, especially Instagram and Facebook, probably Twitter, probably our WordPress. We'll see. Look at those awesome photos because this painting is amazing for one. And the other things I have planned for my other stories is also amazing. Uh, And we will also have a picture of our bunny friend. (laughs) Yay, But anyways, so yes. Uh, So then George Washington, we're moving on in our aristocracy. George Washington originally tried pineapple in Barbados, but he quickly declared that it was his favorite fruit. And he was probably generally pleased that it was also available in America. So kind of just wrapping up. So Ashley, how does this tie into Easter besides my bomb ass reference to Easter baskets? Well... (laughs) Besides it being possible that pineapples were used as decoration in Easter celebrations because it's kind of a spring and summer fruit, in present day celebrations, at least where I grew up, it's a common ingredient in the celebration. Like, can you imagine how a colonist's minds would be blown that we have like pineapple upside down cake and ham decorated with pineapple rings and cherries that we can use like pineapple juice to tenderize and sweeten meat, uh, sweeten meat. It's extremely freaking versatile. And full disclosure, I fucking hate pineapple. <laughs> Plot twist. So much. Yes, plot <laughs> twist. I cannot stand pineapple. Like, it's it's one of the few... That's going to sound terrible. It's one of the few things I can put in my mouth and gag immediately. <laughs> Yikes. Sorry, mom and dad. So, yes, I hate pineapple, but I, I can admit that it's such a versatile food. And probably really good that we no longer have to pay to rent them for a night and we can just buy them outright my husband loves pineapple so i'm like we constantly have it in the house and i hate it but yes so All yeah right. so that's the end of my pineapple questions well, that's exciting um i have to admit that my weird as fuck segment is about food as well yes you ready for this hell yes 
Things are about to get weird, y'all. All right. Bring it on. So every year on Easter, the Brotherhood of the Giant Omelette gathers. What? In Bas- oh, shit. Hold on. Redo that. Bessiers, France. I apologize, French people. Um, especially the one French person I know, Delphi. <laughs> <laughs> and they cook a ginormous omelette using 15,000 eggs. Yo, that's a lot of eggs. It's so many. The organization, which is also known as the Knights of the Giant Omelette. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. They take their mission very seriously, which is to prepare and serve, free of charge and full of joy, a giant omelette. Guys, listen, are you, like, taking new members? Because I need uh, another hobby. Okay. According to legend, at the beginning of the 19th century, Napoleon and his army traveled to the south of France. They decided to stop and rest at the town of Passiers, where Napoleon reportedly feasted on an omelet prepared by a local innkeeper. It apparently blew his fucking mind. It was so good that he ordered that the townspeeper... Peeper. <laughs> People gather all their eggs in the town so they could prepare a huge omelet for his army the next day. Since then, it became a tradition for the residents to meet every Easter to prepare and give out free portions of an omelet along with a piece of fresh bread to every poor person in the village. Well, that was nice. Right? It's so sweet. I feel bad for calling this weird. It's just that it's just a giant omelet that's weird, but this is really weird. Yes. In 1973, this event turned into a festival with music, dancing, and parades. And this year, it is scheduled through 19th through the 22nd. So this is apparently like a rager that goes on for days. Dude, so we're going, right? (laughs) I mean, I would go to France in a heartbeat. Hell yes. So here's just some fun trivia that I have about the festival. So it takes 50 members of the Brotherhood to make the omelet. Like that many people to stir it and like move it. Yikes. It is 15,000 eggs, 25 liters of oil, which... us Americans, that's 6.6 gallons. I googled. (laughs) (laughs) It's 6 kilos, which is 13 pounds of seasoning, and dozens of bunches of chives. It's mixed with spoons the size of oars, and it's cooked in a pan that is 13 feet in diameter. Is it still a spoon if it's a paddle? (laughs) I mean, they're calling it a spoon, so... Okay, let's go with that. We'll just go with it. Um, It's a Big ass pan, which will be on our social media. Yes. Posted. It apparently takes 30 minutes to cook this big ass omelet all the way through. And there's like a special, like you have to be a like special member of the Brotherhood to get it just right. Because it can't be too runny and it can't be overcooked. It has to be just right. And then it's also served with several loaves of bread that measure 1.5 meters. Remember, this is France, so I converted it. Five feet. Nice. And then it weighs 30 kilos, which is 66 pounds. Yikes. Okay, cool. I will eat all of it. I mean, your girl likes some carbs, so I'm down. Hell yes. And that is the big ass omelet in Basir's France. Awesome. Ow, I just slammed my knee into the desk. (laughs) Dude, that's cool. I feel like they need to have one of those challenges where it's like you eat the whole omelet in an hour and it's free. I think they might die. Probably. I don't know that I could eat like, what, 66 pounds of omelet? That's a lot of omelet. But you know what? I would die trying, goddammit. Yeah. I think it's just a cute story because you don't really hear any, like, lovely stories about Napoleon often, so. Yeah, no, no. 
That is very true. No, I do like that. I do like that he was like, here, peasants, have some food. Here, my army, try this amazing omelet. Yes, love it. Like when you're at like Waffle House and you're like, oh my God, this is amazing because it's like 4 a.m. and you're drunk and you can't taste anything and then you're like shoving at people. It's kind of like Oh that. man, good, good times. We're far too old for that now. Oh, Speaking boy. of omelets, here's a story that has nothing to do with one. That was we- an amazing, seamless transition. Thank you. I'm so proud of it. So I, my second role, I got morbid as fuck, morbid AF. And I'm going to talk about James Rupert and the Easter Sunday Massacre. Oh, that doesn't sound very fun. It is not to be confused with the Easter Uprising in Dublin on a week in April of 1916, which I definitely did confuse the two at first. I was, you know, doing my prelim notes and stuff. I was like, yeah, this guy who did this massacre in Ireland. No, that's a damn lie. This happened in Ohio. So don't be like me. Do your research. So anyways, James Rupert was born in 1934. And he is classified as, I don't know why I did hand gestures. You can't see me. I'll eventually learn that. Uh, But he is classified as a mass murderer since he killed a large quantity of people in one incident. If he had killed a large amount of people over several incidences, he'd be a serial killer. So there's a distinction of fun. Uh, so the incident occurred on March 30th, 1975 during the preparation of Easter dinner and he killed 11 people total and his victims were as follows. His mother, Charity Rupert, his brother, Leonard, Leonard's wife, Alma, and then Leonard and Alma's eight children aged four to 17. Oh no. Yeah, it's bad. So the how. The victims were shot a total of 35 times. This happened Easter Sunday, the day after James turned 41, at the two-story home he shared with his mother. His mother, Charity, had invited the whole clan to the house for the day. After they arrived, Leonard and family had an Easter egg hunt on the front lawn. Afterward, they proceeded inside for a reunion and dinner. Everyone was on the first floor except for James, who was upstairs making his final preparations for his plan. Uh, Charity was in the kitchen making sandwiches. I saw a few rumors that the police actually found a pan of sloppy joes on the stove. She was making sloppy joes for the kids. So that's a depressing little side note. Then Leonard and Alma were sitting at the kitchen table. The youngest child was in the bathroom while one of the daughters was outside the bathroom waiting her turn. And then the other six kids were playing in the living room. Oh, no, my heart. Yeah, it it's real. It's real rough. So James, who was described as, quote unquote, a gun enthusiast and crack marksman. Wait, what does that mean? I okay, I didn't have my thinking cap on today for very long when I was writing these. And I was like, crack marksman. So he was on drugs. I'm stupid. (laughs) I swear I'm smart. Like, (sighs) but yeah, so no, he was not on crack. He was just really good at shooting people, as we will find out. Damn it. Anyway, so he came downstairs with three revolvers, a 357 Magnum and matching 22 caliber handguns, as well as an 18-shot rifle. He shot Leonard first, then Alma, who's the only one who tried to fight back. But it wasn't much of a fight. The only thing that they found out of place, the police, when they got there, was a wastebasket that was overturned. But by all intents and purposes, Alma did try to fight back. 
Within a minute or two, he had unloaded 31 additional shots, only stopping to reload. Oh, my God. Yeah. Each person was shot once to disable them and then a second and or third time to kill them. Ten of the 11 victims also had headshots at point blank range and the 11th body was shot in the chest. After three hours after he killed everyone, he called the police and calmly said, there's been a shooting here. He sat. Yes. Like just calmly was like, hey, you know, um, just to let you know, you know, no hurry or anything, but I've killed people. And so, yeah, just like calmly told him there was a shooting, then calmly sat just right in front side the front door and waited for police to arrive and was taken into custody without incident. So the why? When the cops arrived, he was quoted as saying, my mother drove me crazy by always combing my hair. Talk to me like, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I hated my mom combing my hair as a kid. Like, I was definitely a tender-headed kid. Never wanted to shoot my mom for combing my hair. But you do you, boo-boo. Anyway, so she was always combing my hair. She talked to me like I was a baby. Here's the best one. And tried to turn me into a homosexual. Wait, what? Yes, his mother tried to turn him into homosexual, according to him. I wrote, yikes on bikes, dude. Wow. <laughs> wow. I, I, I'm speechless, and that doesn't happen often. Also, side note, I thought of this while I was writing it. I'm on a Facebook group that you're not allowed to use the word yikes. If you do, they yikes shame you. <laughs> so there's a little levity in the middle of this horrific scene. Because I say yikes a lot. So, yeah. So, on that Facebook group, I would be yikes shamed for saying yikes on bikes. But it's, like, the only... I was speechless, too. So, all I could think was yikes on bikes. But anyway. So, it was also rumored that his mother blamed him for his father's death when he was 12. And also told him that he was a mistake. That either he shouldn't have been born at all or he should have been born a girl. So, mom was a winner, but she did not deserve to get shot. But anyway... At trial, prosecutors proposed that James wanted to kill one of the family's net worth of $300,000 all for himself. Here's his master plan. He thought that he could kill everyone, plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Then after a few years in a mental institution, he would be deemed quote unquote cured and be released to enjoy his small fortune. Are you serious? Yes. This did not go the way that James had planned. So let's talk about the trial just a little bit. Defense attorney Hugh Holbrock said James was, and I quote, one of the kindest human beings I have ever met. He would do anything to help people. Here's the note I wrote on that. You know that saying, I need you like I need a hole in the head? That kind (laughs) of fucking applies here. Like James's family needed his special brand of help like they needed a hole in the head, which he gave them. So like, what the fuck, dude? This is not a nice guy. Uh, so anyway, but his his trial was described as a three ring circus. Spectators would show up as early as like 6 a.m. to race to the elevator and the stairs to get seating in this courtroom. And Dick Perry, a reporter, also referred to it as a free show. Everybody was going because it was free entertainment. So the verdict, James Rupert was originally sentenced to 11 consecutive life sentences on July 3rd of 1975. This was eventually overturned in appeal and he was retried for his crimes, thankfully. I was at when I first read it was appealed, I was like motherfucker, he is not getting away with this. 
But in the retrial, he was convicted by the jury of two counts of murder and then deemed not guilty of the other nine murders by reason of insanity. What? Yes. So from 11's consecutive life terms, he's now serving two consecutive life terms. And then the following year, the house where the murders were committed was opened up to auction off the belongings of the family. And the house was like absolutely awash with looky-loos trying to find bloodstains and gossip. And that, plus all the speculation around the case, kind of led to rumors that the house was haunted. And this is like an entirely different story that we'll cover another time. My final question, but what about the money that he killed all these people for? Yeah. Well... I wrote something very weird that does not make sense on here. So let's wing it. (laughs) So James cannot enjoy that beautiful pile of cash in prison. So the inheritance was forfeited to the state. Oh, hell yeah. Yes. So, yes. So that is the horrific, morbid as fuck story of James Rupert's Easter Sunday massacre. That is horrible. Yes. I I just, I can't even fathom like how horrible a person you'd have to be to do something like that. Right. And like, I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm just so awash in like true crime stories all the time because that's what I listen to and watch a lot. Murder is bad enough, but like to also kill kids is so fucked up. Like it hits me a lot harder than just watching murder or like learning about murder. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And your family, like your nieces and nephews. like Yes. But yes. So that's, that's him. All right. So speaking of spooky haunted murder house uh i had spooky af and uh let's do the damn thing so during the 19th century french seafarer pierre lodi said there exists in the midst of the great ocean in a region where nobody goes a mysterious and isolated island the island is planted with monstrous great statues the work of whom i do not know what race can you guess what I'm talking about? Cyclops. It's Cyclops. <laughs> Cyclops. It is Easter Island. Damn it. I mean, <laughs> so yay! Close. So close. So close. All right. So it was named Easter Island because the Dutch explorer Jacob Rogovin happened to discover it on Easter Day in 1722. It is, even today, the most remote inhabited place on Earth. It's just 14 miles long and 7 miles wide. (laughs) I swear I'm smart. The island is more than 2,000 miles off the coast of South America, and it's 1,100 miles off the nearest Polynesian island. It remains, even today, one of history's biggest mysteries, with nearly 1,000 statues that average 30 feet tall and 80 tons. Oh, wow. Okay. Like, how many elephants is that? What is the average elephant? Two tons? So 40 that's... elephants? Jesus. Okay. That's right. I can math sometimes. <laughs> As you can imagine, early travelers didn't know what the hell was going on when they saw these big-ass statues. Then, of course, they decided that the island's population was too small, too primitive, and too isolated to be credited with such feats of artistry, engineering, and labor. So good old Captain James Cook wrote in 1774 that... And I quote, we could hardly conceive how these islanders, wholly unequated with any mechanical power, could raise such stupendous figures. That's my uh, historical man voice. I love it. (laughs) So to be fair, most of Easter Island is still a mystery. And attempts to unravel that history have produced many interpretations and arguments. 
So, over the past few decades, archaeologists have assembled evidence that the first settlers came from another Polynesian island, but they can't agree on which one. <laughs> Estimates of... Yeah, right. <laughs> Nobody can agree. <laughs> Estimates of when the people first came to the island range from the 1st to the 6th century. That's, uh, like, that's a very long span of time. Yes. Not know what's going on. And then how they actually found the island, that's a whole other argument. There is some scientific evidence that seems to indicate that the seafaring Polynesians came to Easter Island about 400 AD. Uh, They were also known as the Robin Nui. Um, I happened to watch Mysteries at the Museum to know how to pronounce that. Uh, So this civilization began constructing those iconic statues that are known as Moai today. So when you think of Easter Island, you think of those head statues. That's a Moai. But we're here for the spooky AF, not the logic. So let's buckle up and uh, dive in here. So, aliens. Aliens, yes. (laughs) And books such as Gods from Outer Space by author Eric Von Daniken. He theorizes that the extraterrestrials were marooned. I can't even say this with a straight face. They were marooned on Easter Island and used lasers to build the Moai. Lasers, okay. All right, so he used lasers, and it was either to entertain themselves or maybe show the native inhabitants how to impress peoples of the future, like us. But then, Danikin theorizes that the spaceship eventually showed up to take them back to their own planet, and the uh, indigenous peoples were feeling pretty good about themselves. They were really feeling themselves, you know? (laughs) They tried to produce the statues on their own, but without the alien laser beams, they bombed. And many of the statues were left incompleted. So uh, I'm going to try to contain my rant here uh, a little bit. Please don't. (laughs) There are a few things in history that piss me off more than people assuming that indigenous people are not intelligent enough or had the technological capabilities to build things like, you know, pyramids or the Moai. Uh, Right. So just because it took other civilizations a bit longer to grasp this level of math and science and astronomy... Does not mean it's witchcraft or aliens. Okay, rant's over. Yes, queen. (laughs) So next, cannibalism. (laughs) Yay! Easter Island is also plagued with that pesky uh, cannibalism rumor. In the book, Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed, the author, Jared Diamond, argues that by the end of 1400, the island civilization experienced a rapid decline ecologically due to deforestation, soil erosion, and overpopulation. He thinks that this led to wars that may have knocked over many of the Moai and eventually led to cannibalism. Uh, I know, that escalated pretty quickly to me. Deforestation, cannibalism. Yes. Like, uh, That's right. Keep cutting trees, America. We're coming for you. (laughs) All right. So here's his reasoning behind this. The palm trees that once covered the island were cut down by the Rabanui um, to move the statues to, uh, you know, get them to the locations of the island where they're at. And they also use those trees to make houses and build canoes. So without any trees to anchor the soil, the fertile land eroded away, resulting in bitch-ass crops and no canoes to uh, go fishing in. Ergo, this led to hunger warfare and ultimately cannibalism so uh hunger starts wars y'all and this won't be the first time i say that <laughs> so another thing to make you go hmm is that the island's famous anakai tangata i hope i said that right cave 
literally translates to the cave where men are eaten. Oral history suggests that the champions of competitions would have epic victory feasts that sometimes included human victims. Yikes. Just so, like, you know, so nonchalant. Yeah, we won. Let's have a victory meal with some people. Yes, like you do. <laughs> like you do. Some of these cruel feasts took place in the cave where they led the unfortunate rivals to their slaughter. So I remember this one time in college, I was taking an art history class, and they said that another South American civilization, Tenochtitlan, I'm so proud of myself that I can say that, they would actually sacrifice the winners of their games because they're not going to give their gods their bitch-ass losers. So, nice. Uh, I mean, maybe this is better? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> would you really be sacrificed for being the winner or the loser? I think probably... <laughs> I think if I was the winner, I would at least want to be mated with someone before they sacrificed me. Yeah, yeah, that is a good point. So, despite these legends, there's no actual physical evidence that there was cannibalism through excavations and the such. Because they ate them. Yes, it could just be this weird party story that got out of hand and accidentally spread generations through oral history that, oops, we were cannibals. (laughs) Whoops! I love that it's oral history that spread cannibalism <laughs> sorry you but it, <laughs> you heard it here first all right so finally i'm gonna end with a quickie ghost story so mm. according to those on the island spirits call out on the wind and you can hear the sounds of chains scraping the streets at night one of the island's legends told on the island tells of a ghost story of pito pito and i'm hoping i'm saying that right uh he is a french Tahitian businessman who violated women and was mean to children. So an all-around asshole. That was until one day when the locals had enough with his shit. And here's a quote from an archaeologist on Easter Island who actually heard the story from some of the locals. Quote. At that point, the island community took action and searched across the town until they found Pito Pito and they chained him to four horses. They pulled him limb from limb. But the story goes that even today, that the Matavari neighborhood, you can hear the chains jangling on the roadways in the evening of those horses that still ride around and separate his body parts. Yikes. Okay, cool. And uh, you have a funny story? (laughs) That's a a good transition. Yes, it is a, it's a short one, but, and it's... (sighs) I want to just be like, fuck yes, it's funny. But I realized as I was writing this that if you don't have a warped sense of humor, it might be more <laughs> weird than funny. But we're just going to jump right in. So for my funny as fuck story, I am going to talk about Marginalia, which I subtitled The Bunnies of Revenge. Yes. So there's several layers to this story. First, the definition of marginalia, uh, marginal notes, doodles, notes, notations, definitions, asides, anything that, you know, you jot down in the margins of books, of printed works. I'm like, I'm the queen of doodling in textbooks and that kind of thing. So I'm really glad I'm done with school. But anyway, so what we're going to talk about is these amazingly violent rabbits that are found in the marginalia of medieval manuscripts. These drawings are actually called drolleries, which (sighs) drolleries are their own little subcategory of marginalia. And basically, drolleries mean that (laughs) 
it's just weird fucking drawings. Like one of the other uh, examples is a bird, almost like a stork or a heron that has a man's face. These weird ass bunnies that I'll get more into that kind of thing. But these drawings were seen as the height of medieval comedy, much like that trope that you see. in, especially like the cartoons that we kind of grew up with in the nineties of like Wiley e. Coyote sawing the branch that he happens to be sitting on. That actually originated as medieval comedy in these manuscripts, in these drawings. And like weird shit like that. Like there was another one that was a barber that had a wooden leg that was apparently like really fucking hilarious to people. And even the articles I read were like, we don't get it. (laughs) And I also don't get it. But yeah, so it was like super funny. So yes, the the Wile E. Coyote shtick of sawing the branch out from under yourself is actually a drollery. So your fun fact for the day, even though all these facts are fun. But so (laughs) the main article I read about this used, I'm going to use verbatim what they said, because the way they describe these is exactly how I would. So they describe them, and I quote, as rabbits doing horrible violence to people, which is strangely adorable. (laughs) I am here for it. Which that's practically like my entire aesthetic. That's just my life. So now, like, as I was looking at these images, which we will definitely put up on our Instagram and our, our other social media, like, I definitely want a rabbit drollery marginalia tattoo now. I think this, like, beautiful bunny riding a snail that I'll talk a little bit about. Oh, my God. I love it. Right. So, anywho. So, rabbits in original manuscript drawings were used to depict, like, purity, helplessness, virtue, et cetera, et cetera. This is why a lot of early portrayals of Jesus contain him being surrounded by like sweet, fluffy bunnies and other woodland creatures. Here's my side note on this. Like Jesus is the original Snow White. Like they probably cleaned his little Easter cave. So (laughs) anyway, (laughs) but yeah, so Rob, Robbits, really, that's where we're at. Rabbit are also commonly known as a sign of fertility due to the mass amounts of litters a rabbit can produce um, per year. So this brings us back to Kino's first story. This is, think of the phrase, fuck like rabbits. (laughs) So we have come full circle from first story to last. But anywho, so the beauty of this is that rabbits also, it's weird because the English, I've always been fascinated with this and I can't remember what it's called and I meant to look it up. So I'm really sorry. But the English, especially in like Cockney back in the like 17, 1800s, did this thing where like knees were referred to as biscuits because knees rhymed with cheese and people ate cheese on biscuits. So knees became biscuits. So that makes total sense. So somebody along the way did this weird like seven degrees of Kevin Bacon or whatever to the word connell, which is the 14th century Anglo-French term for rabbit, and turned it into coney and used that as a slang term for vagina. What? Yes. (laughs) So conies were the rabbit term for your vagina. So much like how a male chicken, a cock, is associated with a penis, these bunnies, these conies, were associated with vaginas. Oh my god. So that's where we're at. Also, side note, I was typing my notes on my lunch break and I had to pop out to our desk for a minute to help 
with a class that came in and one of my favorite teens came up and was like asking me questions and wanted to look at stuff on my computer. And I had to try so hard to dodge him while I was typing in like cock for penis. And like, it was very weird. (laughs) So anyway, the use of today. Yes. The youth. So yes. So on to the actual evil bunnies, these weird ass drawings, they were basically they were done in like otherwise serious writings. Sometimes the draw or most of the time, let's let's go 95% of the time. The drawings had nothing to do with the like what the manuscript was about. Like it could be a manuscript about how to, you know, plant onions in the spring and then in the in the like marginalia it would have a drawing of a bunny flaying a man alive. Oh my god. Yes, we will definitely post photos of some of these that I found. But okay, so these all of these evil bunnies is specifically referred to like I mentioned drolleries, you know, there's a weird bird with a man's face and stuff like that. But this specific set of the evil bunnies is referred to as the world turned upside down. Since rabbits were normally innocent and helpless or uh, passive but willing sexually. This was kind of the bunnies take revenge. Uh, So, and and a lot of stuff in like normal manuscript illustrations would depict like wolves jumping on rabbits in an implied like sexual imagery type thing. So the supplication meant that drollery bunnies were out for revenge. Basically, medieval artists. So So basically medieval artists were like, wouldn't it be a gas if bunnies got theirs for once? And thus the world turned upside down was born. So I couldn't find an exact instance of when these babies came to be. It was all just left at a very egg medieval era. But the misery cord seats in Manchester Cathedral are supported by a 15th century carving of a hunter that is being spit roasted by rabbits while his hunting dogs are being boiled in a pot by the angry rabbits holding sticks. So the sticks, you, you'll you see, I think all of the examples I have, I'll have to look back again, but I'm pretty sure all of them. The rabbits are holding sticks, like large sticks. Okay. How many times can I say stick? Anyway, so why the sticks? There was a medieval term for coward called stick hair. S-T-I-C-K-H-A-R-E. So stick hair. These, basically, because it was like, oh, you're so cowardly, you're like a stick hair. They were like, wouldn't it be hilarious if these hairs were wielding sticks and weren't being cowardly? So, you know, turning that on their heads. So these rabbits are armed with sticks and they they do like weird nefarious deeds to people that have wronged him. Like I mentioned the flayed man and uh, he's like laying on the ground and he's tied to trees and there's a bunny at his head and his tail and the one at his or uh, his head and his feet. He doesn't have a tail. He's not a bunny. <laughs> but he, the one at his feet is actually like peeling his skin off his foot. It's kind of gross. So you see that. You also see another of my favorites. It's a rabbit that's jousting a dog while riding a snail with the face of a man. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's that's a lot. It's it's a lot. And the dog is riding a rabbit. So there's just a lot going on there. And, you know, sometimes they'll they'll depict rabbits facing down dogs because they're the enemy and they're used to hunt them and chase them and all that. But sometimes like another one that we'll be posting is 
the dogs also kind of get theirs and become part of this world. So one of them is the rabbits and the dogs have teamed together and are burning down a castle. Oh, no. Like they're laying siege to a castle. And then snails, likewise, were seen as like really slow and this and that. So there's actually some depicted where the snails are fighting peasants and like the peasants are running away. So it's kind of just like flipping the script. And um, with the with them fighting the sticks, I wrote down what's the quote by Teddy Roosevelt, speak softly and carry a big stick. Well, carry a big stick indeed do these rabbits do. <laughs> That's quite the sentence. But uh, yes, but yes, so that is... Everything I will admit, like I, I was super pumped to write about or talk about these rabbits. And then once I started really digging, I could not find a ton of information. So yeah, so that's all I've got on the rabbits. But so far, I might like revisit it at some point, And I'm definitely going to put the pictures up and everyone needs to see them. And then we have to collaborate and all get drollery rabbit tattoos. Oh my gosh, yeah, especially because this is episode one. This could be like a bonding experience. Yes, I love it. Yes. So yeah, we like did all of our stories. We survived. That was awesome. Oh yeah, we did. All right, guys, that was Easter. And next week, if you want to help us pick our theme, join us on Patreon. We have a poll up there for our majestic as fuck Patreon. Or what? What are they called? (laughs) Patron. Yes. <laughs> Patron people. <laughs> Donors. <laughs> we would also like to do our first shout out for our first Patreon member, Kara Blanchard. And I am so sorry. I don't think I actually know how to pronounce your new last name. I'm going to assume it's Rogue. I only knew you as Kara Blanchard, so I'm so sorry. <laughs> But we are so excited to have you, and we're so excited to bring you guys extra content, which includes our Q&As, our drunk dives, get the librarian list, and then you also get the historian's bucket list, among other things. Yes, like bloopers. Bloopers? <laughs> yes. So many bloopers. <laughs> oh, many bloopers, guys. Come on. All right. And then you can find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at historical af pod all one word and you can also if you want to become a patreon donor or see what our patreon is about or two tiers you can go to patreon.com slash historical af pod and we got something really exciting for you guys we are going to do an extra episode every month which is going to be a combination of what is in the news And then we're also going to listen to your stories. So we want to know your family history. Is there somebody really badass in your genealogy that you need us to know about? Send us your stories at historicalafpod at gmail.com, and we will read them on the air. I know for one, I have some really badass people in my history, and I can't wait to tell people. So we want to give you guys the opportunity to do that. Same, same. Yeah, I have some uh, badass people, a badass woman, and... uh, All that that I definitely want to get into, but we want to hear your stories and the weird, the funny, the interesting, the downright awesome. Just let us know. All right. And just one last piece of business before we sign off for this pod. Uh, We are running a contest. If you like us on social media, it can be Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. 
and give us an amazing rating and review on any of the podcast platforms that you're listening to us on iTunes, Google Play, you know, Podbean, any of those and send us a screenshot. You can either do it on one of the social medias that we have or send it to our email and with your name. We are going to do a drawing. We don't have a date set on our drawing yet, but I figured we would get a couple of episodes under our belt and see what comes in. And then we'll do a drawing for some free swag. We don't know exactly what it is, but it's going to be pretty awesome if our brainstorming ideas are anything to go off of. Absolutely. Hell. things that we want ourselves. Oh, yeah. No, I'm going to go so broke buying our own swag. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. So thank you for joining us. We are so excited to be bringing you this awesome history podcast. And we hope you join us next week. Yes, we look forward to seeing you. And I hope you all have a fantastic week. Thank you for listening to Historical As Fuck. Yeah. Bye. Bye.